Good morning. It is a privilege to be here this morning. I was, I was talking to uh, some of the deacons and elders and others this morning. I said, first of all, let's continue to pray for Warren for his full recovery. It was his deepest heart's desire to be here this morning to begin preaching once again. And thanks be to God that he has given to us, Ambassador Presbyterian Church, a very faithful shepherd and minister of the Word of God. When I was uh, asked to preach this week, I thought, all right, the varsity has been sidelined. <laughs> and, 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 and the second behind the varsity is preaching someplace else. <laughs> so here I am, the minor league, coming to... <laughs> to present the word this morning. Uh, the passage we're going to be looking at is Isaiah chapter 40, uh, the first 11 verses. It should be familiar to you, both in terms of your reading of scripture, uh, but also some famous piece of music they play at Christmas time. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Let's pray. O sovereign Holy Spirit, you have given us this word by the prophets of old, and even as Scripture declares to us in the New Testament that you, O Holy Spirit, simultaneously, the Spirit of Christ, working in the prophets to enable the, 
to declare these things beforehand what should take place and the fulfillment of time in the person of you, our Lord Jesus and Savior, Son of God. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, open up our eyes now that we may see Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. You can see the title of the message this morning, The Church's One Foundation is Christ. So I want to begin by thinking about foundations. And it recalls to my mind a conversation I had with my wife a little more than 20 years ago uh, because she happened to, uh, her professional career was that of a residential building inspector. And as a Midwestern girl, St. Louis area, uh, that meant that she had to understand foundational integrities of buildings, especially since all of those places have basements. And one of the big problems with basements is they sometimes happen to leak. So we were having this conversation about foundations and basements and leaking and all this. And she went into this rather detailed explanation to me of hydrostatic pressure. Hydrostatic pressure. You know what I'm talking about, right? Well, it's actually the water that seeps into the ground and that can come up to the foundation of the building that you're constructing. And it can apply a constant kind of pressure in such a way that Water can do what other things really don't seem to be able to do. It can find every little crevice, it can find every little hole, and it can seep in through a foundation and into your basement, and it can weaken the structure completely. And that's why good house building involves sloping ground away from the foundation, making sure your gutters put the water away from uh, the house, and on all of those kinds of things to lessen the dangers. And so one of the things my wife said to me as we were talking about these things, he says, see, it's so important for us to build firm foundations. And she was thinking about the Christian life, and she quoted to me uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, conform no longer to the patterns of this world. Because she said, the pressures of this world, the patterns of this world are like hydrostatic pressures on the side of a basement. And we need to make sure that we build a foundation that is strong and secure. But in thinking through that idea, the foundation, I thought, but wait a second. Does Scripture really say that we build the foundation? And so my mind went to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verses 9 through 11, where the Apostle Paul talks about foundations in a very significant sense. He says this in the second half of verse 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, He says, you, speaking to the church, the body of Christ, you are God's building. First, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds on it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Christ. And of course, this expresses a truth that every one of us knows as Christians. Jesus Christ is the one sure foundation of his church, that we are his new creation by water and the word. We know that from heaven he came to seek us, her, the church, the bride. He sought us to be his holy bride, and that with his own blood he bought us, and for her life, our life, He died. Now we know this, we sing this, 
We believe this. And Jesus is absolutely different than any foundation of a house that we would ever build. We would need to make sure that that foundation is strong based upon our own sophisticated knowledge of hydrostatic pressures and so forth. But the foundation that Christ has laid, the foundation that is Christ himself, needs nothing from us. And it's good for us to be reminded of this from God's own word, that we have this one unshakable foundation that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So in a nutshell, this is what my message is all about. When life is unsettled, it is vital for us to know and to live the truth that the foundation we have is Christ himself. That is to say, our sure and certain foundation is Christ. This is true for the church as a whole, as his body, but it's also true for each of us individually and personally. We are members of his body. Each one of us can see and sing and believe Jesus Christ is my foundation. Now, with respect to this passage, let me just give you some very, very quick background. It's prophetic. This is the prophecy of Isaiah. Uh, in fact, what we have before us in this passage is so well known in Christian history. It is so well known that this passage speaks about Christ, that it speaks about the promise of the Messiah to Israel and to the world, that even though the original context has been involving the Babylonian captivity, universally Christians have known and understood that this speaks far beyond. It speaks to the time when God would give that ultimate release from exile, that ultimate return from captivity, which is to be found in the Messiah, his son, our savior. This is so well known that this is what we call a messianic passage that way back in 1741, the great composer Handel begins his great, he didn't know it was going to become a great Christmas favorite, but his great masterpiece, Handel's Messiah. It begins with the first five words of this passage. So, we're going to come to this passage with that framework, that understanding, that point of view. We're missing what is being said here if we do not see that it is Jesus who's actually saying these things to us. If we do not hear his voice speaking to us. So that's our frame of reference. Present this passage from that point of view. For us to hear the voice of Jesus speaking to us, speaking to us with respect to our lives. And I want to think about this, again, framing this in a particular context. Think about this in a very practical way about the nature of our lives. Life is unsettled. As much as you and I would want for life to move forward with smoothness, regularity, predictability, tranquility, fewer rough spots, lower inflation, better inflation rates, 
happier children, wiser political leaders, wars to cease, soldiers to come home, California to finally fall into the ocean. I can say that because I'm a Californian and I have survived three major earthquakes. As much as we want life to be easier, as much as we would like that to be the case, the truth is, God declares us in Scripture that we actually are going to be shown many trials and tribulations and distresses. In this world, Jesus said, you will have tribulation. In the actual patterns of the world, we will see forces that press upon us like hydrostatic pressures that would conform us away from the truth and conform us to the world. This passage then, let it be for us a sweet reminder from Jesus. In this passage, let us hear the voice of Jesus describing three essential aspects of the foundation which is Christ. First of all, first couple of verses, the foundation is grace. Then secondly, from verses 3 through 8, the foundation is his way. And then thirdly, verses 9, 10, and 11, the foundation is Christ himself. Now, I want to proceed through each one of those sections by focusing in upon key words, key vocabulary, and then associated key concepts with it. So when we look at the first couple of verses, we're focusing upon the big picture, grace. It's vital for us to understand that one of the most significant foundations of our lives that is in Christ himself is his grace. And we see this in the first couple of verses because of several words there that convey to us the grace of Christ, the grace that is in Christ. We have the beginning words, comfort, spoken to God's people. And then we have it spoken in a way that's tenderly, speak tenderly. And then we have the word warfare, and then we have the word pardon. Those are the four significant words I want us to think about. In the context of Jesus speaking to us, I want us to grasp as strongly as we can that he speaks to us words of comfort, words that are to come to us in tenderness. That is, when we think about the grace of God, we need to associate that with how Jesus comes to us, how Jesus speaks to us. And grace is to give us comfort. And grace is to come to us with tenderness and, and gentleness. And in all of those ways that would draw us and attract us to the lovely heart of Jesus. That's the voice of Christ. But in addition, we see the prophet here, the words of Jesus, speaking of two other ideas warfare and pardon warfare Jesus has declared here in this passage that our warfare has ended and that we have a pardon for all of our sin and iniquity now that reminds us that in this fallen world life is a battle in fact it's a series 
of constant battles. It's, it's a war, it seems to us, constantly against the world, the flesh, the devil. Life is a battle, a number of battles against the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Life is a battle against the principalities and powers of this dark world. So how can Jesus say that the warfare has ended? Because he is our foundation and his message is about grace. He has by his atoning death, that death upon the cross, that death in our place, brought us the pardon that our sins deserve. The warfare no matter how many battles remain, has been won by that work of Christ upon the cross. There, Jesus crushed the serpent's head. There, our sins were nailed to the cross. There, we were released from the curse. There, the Son of God set us free. So even though we live amid toil and (laughs) tribute, toil and tribulation and tumult of this war, the victory has already been won. We will never be lost to the world, the flesh, or the devil because the power of the grace of Christ, because he himself says, this warfare, our warfare, has ended. Our iniquities have been pardoned. This message of a saving, redeeming, keeping grace is built there in that sure foundation, which is Christ. We should hear these words, these tender words, and be constantly comforted by them. Because as Christians, our lives are grounded and founded on our Lord Jesus. Now the second way that we see that Christ is our foundation and how significant this way is happens to be the way that Christ is the foundation of our lives because he is the way. So as we look at this next section, verses 3 through 8, we're going to divide it into two parts. We'll We'll look at verses 3, 4, and 5. Then we'll look at verses 6, 7, and 8. But once again, keying in upon key words. In verses 3 through 5, the key words are, in fact, synonyms. It's the word way and the word highway. They both mean virtually the same thing as they are found in this passage. What they mean is this, the way of the Lord, the way that belongs to the Lord, the way that the Lord comes to his people and how his people come to him. Now, we look at the description of this way or this highway, how it comes to pass, how it makes its appearance in the world. We notice in the passage that the entire landscape changes. It has to change. Uh, The valleys are filled in. The mountains and the hills are brought down and leveled. 
Rough places are made into a plain. So all of this geography, really all of this topography, gets essentially leveled. It becomes something smooth, something that is straight. But then we think about the way. We think about the highway. And we notice that it is something that is, in fact, raised up. It's upright but raised up. That is the only thing that has any height after this work is done is the Lord's highway. What does this mean? It's fully visible. Because neither hills nor valleys can hide it. It is so visible, so elevated above the rest of the plain that the Lord's highway is the very place, as it said in verse 5, that the glory of the Lord is revealed and all flesh, all humanity together can see it. Now, we have to move back to chapter 35 because in this chapter 40, when the way is mentioned, it's already been mentioned by Isaiah the prophet back in chapter 35. And so let me include this in terms of our understanding of what Jesus is saying to us. Back in chapter 35, verses 8, 9, and 10, listen to these words. And Jesus says, And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they will not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, and everlasting joy will be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. When we're pointed to this in Scripture, we are pointed and being pointed to Jesus as the way. All of these incredible realities are found in Him, just as Jesus Himself proclaimed to His disciples. John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Another way that can be translated is this. I am the true and living way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus has declared to us that he is the fulfillment of all things spoken through the prophet Isaiah in terms of chapter 35 and in chapter 40. Jesus is the way. He is the Lord's highway. It is in Jesus that the glory of God has been revealed and all flesh together will see it. It is in Jesus that we are the ransomed of the Lord that shall return and obtain everlasting joy upon our heads. It is in Jesus 
that all sorrow and sighing shall disappear because Jesus is the way. Jesus is himself God's highway to God. Jesus, the true and living way. But then also we need to move into verses 6, 7, and 8, which are kind of a surprising contrast. It's almost as though you could take these three verses out and say, well, how do they fit? How do they really fit? Well, they do. But there's definitely a shift here. And sometimes Scripture does this by shifts us in a direction which presents a great contrast of things. And that's what we find in these three verses. It's, It's a place where the key concepts are found in terms of contrasting elements. Because first we have that which withers. And then we have that which endures forever. In the word flesh, which is called grass, we are told that this refers to all people, the human race, before who God is in all of his exalted nature as God. All flesh all humanity is as grass like the flower of the field the grass withers the flower fades but in contrast we have the Word of God that which will stand forever that which endures that which never fails and never fades the very Word of God This contrast is one that we as believers must always bear in our consciousness at all times. The frailty of humanity versus the forever endurance, stability, steadfastness, eternality of the Word of God. It has a very direct connection to what Jesus says in the New Testament where the same contrast is made and where it's tied into the concept of foundation. In the last part of the Sermon on the Mount, the last message that Jesus has in that great sermon beginning at verse 24, chapter 7, he says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, all this hydrostatic pressure building up, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it was built upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Human frailty always means that if we build a house apart from Christ, it sits on a bed of sand. But if Jesus is the way, if he's our way, 
then he is the foundation that will never fail. The house built on Christ will stand against all the forces of this world. And so we say, Christ is the way. Christ is the foundation of our lives. He is our way to heaven. He is our way of salvation. He is our way to our Heavenly Father. And then lastly, verses 9, 10, and 11. Very, very precious words where Jesus speaks about himself so clearly. It's vital for us to know and to live the truth of what Jesus says about himself. So four key words in these three verses. Gospel. God. Might. Shepherd. In verse 9, we have the word gospel. That is to say, when the word in the Hebrew, good tidings, is taken over into the Greek, it is translated in the New Testament as gospel, good news, again and again and again. And of course, we've sung this song in different kinds of ways at Christmas time. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Go tell it on the mountain, right? We've used this passage in terms of our popular songs about Christmas at Christmas time to declare something that is more than a popular idea, what is a most profound truth, that the gospel declares that Jesus Christ has come into the world to be our Savior. But more than that, we have the word God. And the word God here is described in this way. Behold your God. And then it goes on to say at the beginning of verse 10, Behold, the Lord God comes. Now what's interesting is that we have the word God, and then the next verse, Lord God, and we have three different words in the Hebrew. The first word God is the same word that we have in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The next word is the word Lord, which is often translated as that sovereign. It has the meaning of the one who is the ultimate ruler uh, from the Hebrew Adonai. The last word translated God in your translation most likely is the word Yahweh. It's the covenant name that God revealed to Moses. In fact, it's the same name and the connection where Jesus spoke to his adversaries, the Jewish leadership in John chapter 8, verse 58. When they're, they're saying, who are you? Who are you? And he says, before Abraham was born, I am. And I am, in the Greek, is a derivation of the Hebrew verbs that speak to the concept that I am that I am in the Hebrew from which Yahweh is derived. God's eternal name for himself, the God who was, who is, 
who is to come. But now we have this God coming and we have the message spoken to the people of Israel, to God's promised covenant people, behold your God. And the word behold here means look and see. Behold your God comes. Look and see. God can't be seen. God is invisible. How are they supposed to look and see and behold God? Well, the point is they won't and they can't until this passage finds its fulfillment in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, the one who comes, who himself, as it says of him, John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. Behold your God, the Word made flesh, the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. The third word is might. We see this in verse 10, which speaks of the one coming with all of his might, with his reward, with his recompense. And we need to understand that when the Lord Jesus came, or to put it this way, when the second person of the Godhead came, when the Word who was with God, the Word who was God, when the Word became flesh, he never ceased to be God. Always God. Never less than God. Taken into himself a perfect and true human nature. So when we think about the frailty, the natural frailty of the humanity of Christ in terms of its being a true human being, we must at the same time never, ever forget that the scripture tells us that the fullness of God dwelt in him in bodily form. That all of the might and power that God has as God was resident in the person of Christ, even in his incarnation. Because only if this was so could the person of Christ, Jesus our Savior, bear the infinite penalty of our sins upon the cross. To bear under the infinite wrath of God in our place and to pay the infinite debt. Because to die in our place, Jesus had to be man. But to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world Yes, man, but he also had to be God. He had to be the incarnation. He had to be Emmanuel. He had to be God with us. The fourth word, shepherd, verse 11. Look at how Jesus presents himself to us. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Do you see the concepts of comfort and tenderness there? 
This is what grace looks like. And do you see his way toward us? He gathers us. He carries us in his bosom. He gently leads us to the Father because he is the way. Because he is our good shepherd. Listen to these same thoughts as Jesus states them in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, my sheep hear my voice. Do you hear the tender and comforting voice of Jesus speaking to you? Do you not hear Jesus saying to you that your warfare has ended? Your sin has been pardoned? Everything forgiven? Does this not tell you that his grace of dying in your place is the foundation of your life? Then Jesus continues, and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Yes, we follow Jesus because he is the way. He is the way to the Father. He is the way to heaven. He's the way to everlasting life. He is our foundation. And then he continues to speak. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Precious words of who the Good Shepherd is. Precious words of what the Good Shepherd has done. Precious words of the essential unity of the Good Shepherd as the Son of God with the Eternal Father. The eternal security we possess is because he is of one true nature with God who is our Father. And therefore we have this conclusion. In every way, whatever is necessary in order to live amidst the unsettling things of life, we know this, we live this, we sing this. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Let's pray. Our God and Father, as we think about what our Lord Jesus has said to us, we pray that we would once again taste and see how good it is to know our Savior, His grace, how he is our way to you, Father, how he is the shepherd of our lives, and to trust him for everything. And as we continue this morning, as we come to that table, which is his table, we pray that as we meditate upon the meaning of his death again, when we think about his inauguration of the new covenant, 
when we remember his promise to come again. May our hearts be filled with the preciousness of his grace, all of his ways, and his loving kindness toward us as our shepherd. That in all things, Almighty God, the glory would be to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.